Uh, before we get into Joshua 9, actually, I, I want to share a little story that I think will help us. I was uh, in South Africa playing rugby when I was about 19. And um, I went to the bank one day to get some cash. Uh, we were going out for dinner to get some steak. I was very excited by this. And so I ran down to uh, near our hotel to the closest bank, got to the bank, and I put my card in. And it had worked before, so I was confident. And uh, nothing happens. I'm just looking at the screen, it's still the same. Nothing, there's no one, there's nothing telling me to put in my codes. There's nothing that's changed about the screen. And so I'm looking a bit blank because my card is in there. And so I don't really want to walk away um, and get some help because if I go around and into the bank, then, oh, like, what about my card? Well, something takes it. Or, I don't know. I was just a bit worried about that. So I thought, okay, I won't do that. I'll stick around and I'll wait to see if someone trustworthy turns up. I need somebody to help me. And thankfully, trustworthy of all trustworthy, my grandmother <laughs> comes behind me and says, can I help you? I thought, yes, you can. You are a very trustworthy looking person. You're probably in your 80s. You look like you've got grandchildren, maybe great-grandchildren. Um, you look like the kind of lady I can trust. And so uh, she starts to give me some advice. Now, at this point, I have kind of lost my ability to discern what is the right thing to do. I think because I trust her so much. I've just assumed this is the type of person you can trust. And so I've lost the ability to work out whether or not she's telling me to do the right thing. That's my justification before I tell you the stupid thing I did. <laughs> she said, put in your pin code. And then press enter, and it will spit your card back out, and you can start again. It's also a broken machine. I'm like, great, I shall do that. Put in my pin code. It's a different pin code now, just don't try and work it out. <laughs> and she says nothing to me at this point. I thought, that's strange. So I turn around again to find out what's going on, and She's gone, which I found strange. Now, by this point, there are other people there. And there's a little kind of crowd who gathered around this cash machine. And I noticed that a couple of the other ones who were there by this point have also gone. And then there are people uh, trying to speak in Zulu to me, which I was really struggling to understand. And they were quite animated, and I couldn't understand why. Anyway, eventually a security guard comes around, and he basically says, you're a stupid boy. Why did you believe this granny? This granny is part of a gang. And what's happened is you've put your card in and there's a little black slip that they put in before that part, is very common. And um, when you've put it in, nothing's registered because it's inside this black slip. Then she gets your attention. You turn around to see where she's at. She's, she gets your pin code. You turn around to see where she's at. And when you turn around, the other guys steal your card and run away. Clever, I thought. But rather frustrating. And actually, it, it felt right to trust this old lady. But in hindsight, I was hugely naive. In Joshua 9, the Israelites are in need of help. So they've just uh, defeated uh, the city of Ai, or Ai, and before that, the city of Jericho. And you think, well, they must be confident by now. God is doing extraordinary things amongst them. They're, he's uh, causing them to win their battles. But no, what has just happened is that an alliance has taken place between all the other tribes, bar one, 
And these tribes are going to gang up on Israel. And so this is a whole different prospect. This is a whole different fight on their hands now. And so they have these people come to them and offer them a truce. A people who claim to be from far away, from way outside of the land. An alliance, people who could help them. And they look like the type of people that you could trust. They look the part, but as we'll find out, they were tricking them just like that granny. And actually they end up falling into an unholy alliance. Let me pray before we read the text. Father God, I thank you for uh, Joshua 9. I thank you God that uh, the story, this seemingly strange story about the Gibeonites coming and tricking the Israelites has actually got a lot of significance for us. And so God, I pray that as you open up your word to us, that God, we would uh, not just see this as a history lesson or an, an opportunity to learn more, but God, we would see this as an opportunity to come into your presence by your word. I pray, Father, that as we uh, explore your word, we know that you're speaking to us. So come, speak with us in power, we pray, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you've given us your word. And I pray that you'd help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So what happens is uh, these, the Israelites get into this unholy alliance with the Gibeonites. And that's a problem. That's our big problem. They get into this unholy alliance with another tribe called the Gibeonites. They've pretended they're from far away, but actually they're from within the land. And I'll explain in a minute why that's a big problem. Then God brings a solution. And his solution is about a holy union, not just with Israel, but also with the foreigners, with the Gibeonites. And then we see how they to continue to live in response to what God has done, this holy union. And they are to live in grace. Okay, so that's our, our kind of three main thrusts that we'll be looking at. Now, as these terrified tribes to the West see what God has done, they are amazed at what God has done. They're amazed at what God has done from what they've heard from what God did in Egypt. They're amazed at what God did at the Red Sea. They're amazed at what God did at the Jordan. They're amazed at what God did at Jericho. And they're amazed at what God did at Ai. So they're trembling in their boots. And they think, well, the best thing that we can do is to club together. We may not like one another, but this is a time to club together. This is time to build an alliance to fight against these Israelites. Now, they decide that they're going to make a treaty with one another, except the Gibeonites decide, no, 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 we don't want to be a part of that. We're going to do it differently. And the Gibeonites come to Israel to make a treaty with them. Clever, right? Who doesn't want to be on the, on the winning side? They've seen what God has done. They're scared. We don't think the alliance, as scary as that looks, is going to be enough. So we're going to do the smart thing. We are going to go and make a treaty with the Israelites. Now, there's just one problem. Israel was forbidden to make an alliance with anyone, any of the tribes inside the promised land. When Satan first tempted Eve 
in the garden, this land flowing with milk and honey where God's people enjoyed God's life-giving presence. It was a kind of temple, a place where they, they worshipped. Eve was tricked. She was tricked to swap this life of satisfying worship for a new life. A life that seemed more liberating. A life that seemed good. A life that seemed right to Eve. It sounded good. And then, of course, he knew, Satan knew, that once he persuaded Eve, Eve would persuade Adam. Now, you may not hear the whispers of Satan in your life very often. You might not hear those whispers in your ear. But you may very well hear them second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand, through the culture, through the world in which we live. A bit like Adam did. We need to recognise that the people around us are powerful forces in our lives. We need to recognise that we are not immune to this. So we can look at this situation and go, man, how did these guys fall for what the Gibeonites did? Well, let me read the story to you. See what you think. Okay? And then um, we'll have a look at, uh, at what happens and then how God steps in. So it's chapter 9. I'm going to read all of it. Okay? A long chapter. But um, it's worth it. Hang on. Helps if you're on the right page. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings of the hill country and the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, he said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, how are you and where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. Shion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now you see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how crap they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The Israelites stamped their provisions and but did not sorry, sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. That's important. The Israelites sampled their provisions, 
but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbours living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you? Well, actually you live near us. You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites. And he did not kill him. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide the needs for the altar at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. God had established a nation to be set apart. A people who were going into the promised land to establish a new kingdom. And it was to be like Eden. It was to have Eden-like qualities. That's why it's called the land flowing with milk and honey. That was supposed to be about God's people entering into the land and being set apart as a holy people. And now here we are with them making oaths, making promises, like entering into alliances with the very people who back in Genesis 15, Abraham is told after 400 years, will be judged because they have not repented and their iniquities of their sin has reached its fullness. Isn't this crazy? (laughs) That the people who are supposed to be set apart as, as holy in the land, who are supposed to be God's representatives, enter into this promise, this covenant, with the very people God has come to judge so what do we do Israel was supposed to be kept from having a a wandering eye by the removal of these people from within the land God was concerned that they were to be unadulterated in their worship totally satisfied in God alone not to be distracted by anything else back in Exodus 23 God commands the people, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live 
in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. A good salesman makes you feel like you need the product they are selling. And they do something else. They remove your, uh, the consequences that are not so good about you making that purchase. They remove your focus from the thing that might not be so good about buying this latest thing. And they make you feel like you need it. And actually that's what is going on here. Satan has been really good at selling us a life away from God's love right from the beginning, hasn't he? Selling us something that's bad for us and making us believe that somehow it's good for us. In the garden, Eve heard that lie and she thought she was missing out. That she really, what she really needed was now being offered to her, even though she had everything she could possibly want. She had everything that was satisfying her. But Satan said, did God really say? My great auntie Bunty used to smoke like a chimney. And uh, whenever I challenged her on this, she uh, would say something like, well, you know Ian, they, they told us that this was good for us. And uh, actually, if you'd been around, I'm sure you would have smoked too. How, how can you say that this is bad when, when I started it was a healthy thing to do? Uh, doctors told us it was good. When actually they're inhaling literally 5,000 chemical components that are harmful for you. It seems crazy maybe to young people growing up now. Man, like, of course. If we're going to choose to smoke, we know the consequences. But they didn't know. They didn't know the consequences. They were blind to it. And there was this conspiracy, wasn't there, that was taking place where uh, all of these big companies were not... I were certainly withholding the information about what these cigarettes really did to you. And actually, isn't that what we do? Isn't that exactly what we do? We inhale the nonsense of the world around us even when it's harmful to us. Even when it steals us from the wonder and the glory of knowing God himself, our creator, who has invited us into his presence. We are still convinced to inhale the nonsense the world offers instead. When we join ourselves to the world, we make an unholy alliance with the world. And we breathe in toxins under the illusion, it's all good. When Jesus prayed for us and the disciples, he prayed that we would be in the world, but not of it. And Paul warns the Corinthian Christians, be on guard. The Gibeonites were slithering like snakes, weren't they? They were in a panic and they just were, they were trying to be sly. But it's not like they'd made a pact with the devil. This is ordinary life. They were just normal people being smart. 
And they knew that to get an alliance, they had to persuade the Israelites that they were from outside the land, from a distant country. They, they, so they, they were smart. They brought this stale bread that, that looked like it had been with them for days and days and, and weeks and weeks and even months. And they bring these old wineskins. And they're all cracked. And so it looks like they've been carrying them all this time. When in fact, they're neighbours. They've come hardly any distance at all. And when Joshua and the other leaders agree to this unholy alliance in verse 15, you might think, how could they be so stupid? Haven't they learned anything? But it wasn't that simple. I think that would be a really harsh reading of the story. These are fierce tribes to the west that have made this alliance. And actually the only thing that they get wrong here, and it's an extremely important thing, but the only thing, and if we think about our lives, I'm sure we make this mistake very regularly. They had not inquired of God. The problem is not that Joshua doesn't think. It's not that he's not wise. It's not that he isn't a wise steward. He's not stupid. He and the other leaders test the bread. They look closely at the worn out gear. The problem was that they didn't ask God. How many big decisions do we make where we haven't asked God? Now listen, we're not talking about like, should I have a long black or a cortado? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm just to go and inquire of the Lord. Like that, that's not the kind of thing we're talking about here. We're talking about big things that come into our lives. But what we do need to be aware of is that we can't just wait until that moment where it comes along. Because it often takes us by surprise. And so we need to be regularly in the presence of God. We need to be regularly going to God in prayer. The more regularly we are in prayer, the more we go and inquire of God all the time. The more instinctively we inquire of God when something like this happens. When a big decision needs to be made. When someone blindsides you with some information that seems wise but actually can really bring a lot of destruction in your life. The devil hates our prayer lives, by the way. He wants to cut us off from the intimacy we have with God. He wants to take us when we're caught off guard and then have us make decisions that lead us away from Jesus, not into God's loving arms. We must not be fooled into thinking Satan is not out to get us. It's often good things that he uses. He often uses, I mean, think about your life. What things keep you from praying? For me, it's often good things. Important things. To-do lists. I have a very long to-do list, you know. And it's very important. Aren't we all busy? How many times have you had a conversation with someone recently and they're like, I'm so busy. Everyone thinks they're busy. You're never too busy to pray. Sometimes it's well-earned rest. And we need that. We need rest. But not if that rest doesn't include going to Jesus, running into his presence. That's where true rest is found. He makes an oath. Joshua and the leaders make this oath by the name of the Lord God of Israel. In God's name, 
it could not be broken. And it couldn't be broken because God is this. God, when he makes promises, he is faithful to keep them. So if you make one in his name, you've you got to keep it. You've got to keep it. And so they're stuck. So what do they do now? Psalm 15.4 says, it could, oh, it could be paraphrased this, keep your promises even when it hurts. Life is not always as simple as we might want it to be. It's messy, isn't it? And making good and godly decisions in a messy world is often complicated, difficult. Life is not black and white. And this story gives us hope in the murky waters of everyday reality. Which leads us to the what now moment. So they've made this error, the Israelites. But what do they do now? How do they respond? Well, actually, the first thing they need to do is not look to how they respond, but how does God respond? How does God respond to a situation like this? Now, surely we're thinking God will bring judgment here. God will bring judgment, surely, on both of them. The Gibeonites, we already know, have been unrepentant for 400 years along with these other tribes. They surely will be judged. God is looking for a people who are set apart for him and they've, who are unblemished and holy. And now the Israelites have tainted themselves, they've corrupted themselves through this and surely they will be judged. Isn't that the, the just thing to do? They deserve to be cut off, judged along with the other tribes. Surely this is what God will now do. Yet God, in his great mercy, does exactly the opposite. He does not do what we deserve. It's not according to what we deserve. That's not how he acts. That's not our God. God takes this unholy alliance and turns them into one people under him in a holy nation. This is our God. He takes his enemies and he makes them his friends through self-sacrificing love. I mean, this is remarkable. The Gibeonites were joined to God's people through their lies. That can't be right. That doesn't sound like the religion I know. Does it not? When Jesus was being crucified, two Roman soldiers are stood beneath the cross. The very men who were put in charge of crucifying Jesus. When he breathes his last breath, they confess, surely this was the Son of God. In Acts 2, Pentecost, the moment the church was born, Peter said this, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. These were the people whose fault it was that Jesus was crucified. 
And Peter addresses him and says, you can be saved because of what Jesus did through your actions. Joshua made a friend of God's enemies through his disobedience. But when Jesus came, this better Joshua, whose name also means God saves, he made the enemies of God friends of God through his obedience. This Jesus who Paul says to the Philippians made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Gibeonites were put under this curse. They, were, they weren't to be released from being servants in the land. But what I love is that one day Jesus would come and he would say to his disciples and anyone who would follow him, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. By becoming a servant to us, God himself humbled himself to death so we and the Gibeonites and every other single people group, every other single tribe, every other single nation could come and receive this glorious, intimate relationship with God, restoring that Eden-like presence, the presence of God himself through Jesus. Now, the Gibeonites have been made woodcutters and water carriers. What's the significance of that? Is that? Do we just brush over that? Is that just part of the story? That, why is it in there? Well, what was the wood and the water for? Worship. Worship in the land. Wood for the burning of incense as the, the people's prayers rise to God. Water for the ceremonial washing of sin. To remove the sin that kept them from God. So God instructed the Israelites back in Exodus 30 to burn the incense morning and evening. Right? Then later the psalm says in Psalm 141 verse 2. May my prayer be set before you like burning incense. And then we read in our Grace Bible reading this week about the prayers of the saints and how they're gathered in this gold, these golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. The Gibeonites got to serve in God's kingdom in the very area that they had originally been used by Satan to try and corrupt and disrupt and taint. They were once used to keep people from God, but God turned it around. God gave them a task Used to bring people symbolically the stage, but bring people into the presence of God. So although the work was menial and although there was still a curse on them at this moment, it was also sacred. Now, if you've not worked it out already, we are both the Gibeonites and the Israelites in this story. We're the Gibeonites because we have been enemies of God 
We have been people far off from God, cut off from God, full of sin. People who have nothing to offer God. People who have actively gone our own way, gone away from God. And yet God has brought us in and made us friends. God has brought us close to the blood of Jesus. And a much better Joshua. But we're also like the Israelites in that we too get things wrong. We too are unfaithful. Even though we know this glorious God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us and we've experienced what it is to know God and we've cried out, Abba, Father, still... Still, we listen to the lies and wander off and get easily deceived. And so there's hope for us here, isn't there? There's so much hope for us here. If you're far off from God, you don't know Jesus yet, God is right now saying to you, I love you, come into my presence because of what Jesus has done. Just confess your sin, confess that you need me and run into my presence. And if you're someone who here is thinking, oh man, I just constantly keep making mistakes. I'm, I'm someone who is like the Israelites who really struggles. Well, there is grace to you and let me explain that. Because number three is our response, live by grace. When Israel hears about what's taking place, they get very grumpy. I understand that. I think I would have got grumpy. Why did you do that? Ugh, another massive setback. Verse 18, the whole of Israel grumbled against its leaders. It's easy to be an armchair sports fan. And it's easy to be a critic of leaders. How many people who slag off politicians would want to stand in their shoes? How many guys can stand in the pub with a pipe in their hands, watching Scotland and say, Ah, they're rubbish. Rubbish. I could do that that. No, you couldn't. I highly, highly doubt... That there are many people who are critical like that who would be willing to stand in those people's shoes. Joshua and the leaders made a mistake. Leaders make mistake, mistakes. Leaders need grace, let me tell you. That's not to say that we can't challenge people in an appropriate way. I hope that you know that I welcome people coming to me and saying, I'm not sure about this. What about this? What about the way you interpreted that? I'm not sure about that. I love those conversations. You know, I've noticed this about your life. Come and chat to me about those things. Like, isn't that grace? Isn't, aren't we supposed to work that stuff out together? We need to be able to challenge one another in grace and love. And leaders should be far from being exempt from that. But the response of our leaders in those situations, these kind of situations where we mess up, their response will tell you more about them and their character than often the mistake itself. Israel's leadership had messed up, but instead of giving up and resigning, like every public figure seems to have to do these days, if there's a a whiff of wrongdoing, Joshua and the others make the best of the situation. And they can only do that because they're already familiar with God's grace to them through his promises. Despite their past mistakes, they recognize that in God we are not paralyzed by our errors. It's not that we 
can continue in God. In fact, that is to not live in grace. That is to reject the gospel would, in that moment would be to say, well, I've disappointed God and so I'm just going to stay here in self-pity over here rather than run back to God. Grace calls us back to God every time. It's not cheap. We're coming with genuine repentance. We're coming and saying, God, I'm so sorry. God, I I need you. I love you. I'm sorry. And I want to be with you again. And you know what God says? Come right back in. Come right back into my presence. Every single one of us has failed. But his grace means that we can continue in faith. Not faith in our own ability, but in the God who leads us by his grace. Satan loves to trick us into failure, but what he really wants is our paralysis. He wants to make us think we can't run back to Jesus. But by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you can run to him. There is a moment, isn't there, after failure, where you are in danger of thinking something like this. The only kind of people God uses are the ones who don't make mistakes. And so I'll just leave the kingdom stuff to them. That's not Christianity. It's not. It's every other kind of religion, but it's not Christianity. Maybe the world says to us, but it's not Christianity. The follower of Jesus needs to know this. There is nothing I can do to keep me from the grace of God. They need to know deep within them. And it needs to become a part of them. That every time they mess up, they can run back to Jesus and he welcomes them with open arms. It's true of our prayer lives, isn't it? We should discipline ourselves to pray regularly. Simple. But I know my heart is to not always want to pray. And that's because we are often judging our willingness to go based on the strength of our will and our feeling. Don't look in, look up. Be amazed at God. Be amazed at what he's done for you. Be amazed at what Jesus did at the cross. If you are amazed by those things, you'll run into his presence. Don't look at yourself. That's what the world wants to tell you to do. Don't look in. Look up. Look to God. Look at what he's done for you. Look at how he set you free. Look at how even the most ridiculous, horrible of mistakes, God has grace for you. I think our Grace Bible reading is a stunning example of this. We decide, right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to join a Grace Bible reading group. It's going to be really good for me. And I'm going to read every day for the rest of the year I'm going to be a champion reader and I'm going to make comments every day on my little whatsapp group I'm so excited about it day three oh it's just really busy today and I just got I just I don't know what happened but I just missed it and oh okay there's your moment there's your moment what do you do now self pity I'm never going to do this This type of Bible reading isn't the type of Bible reading I want to do. No, no, no. Remember what you committed to? And look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Now, it might take you three days, four days, three weeks to get out of that place. Okay? That grace is always on offer to you. 
And what I love about Grace Bible Reading is it's the, that it's called Grace Bible Reading. That means if you've missed six months, Jesus in his grace is saying, jump right back in. And we as a culture in, a, in this church, we need to be people who encourage that. Okay? So that means it's not just down to the person who's maybe missed their Bible read, but grab them at some point and say, hey, I see you've missed your Bible reading. Like, do you know what? It's so hard. And sometimes it's just difficult. And sometimes you miss it. And, like, I'm not going to make all the excuses for you, but here's the thing. It's not about you. Look to God. Like, God's with you. He loves you. He's for you. We love you. We're for you. Like, we're not judging you depending on how many you've done or not. Please don't do that. Please don't judge people depending on how much they've done. We, we just love you. We want, to be, we want you to run into God's grace. That's the goal all the time. We want you to run into the grace of God. Okay? So that's the goal of what we're doing there. That the goal is not that we want to make lots of like little religious people who are just so pleased with themselves because they've been able to keep going every day. Not that that's the opposite of what we want. We want people who are running into the grace of God every day. It's a means of grace. And so don't let it become works righteousness. But also, don't let it become something that you run away from, you get scared from, because you maybe feel shame or guilt or whatever it is. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. Amen? Guys, we are like the deceiving Gibeonites. Or we have been. We are like the deceived Israelites. And we are sinful Glaswegians. You're saints, but you still sin. And we need to keep running to God. Running away from these unholy alliances. Because the world is trying to pull you away from God. Satan is trying to pull you away from God. Don't pretend that's not happening. It's happening. But God is much greater. He's a king. He's overcome Satan. He is one. And he's saying, come into my presence. Come into this. You're already in this holy union with me, made by the blood of Christ. Run back into my presence. Come to me. And keep coming to me, no matter what. Keep running to Jesus. Again, and again, and again, and again.